Hello, and welcome to another not-quite episode of Horror 4H. Today we'll be doing something a little bit different. First off, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Remember, if you haven't already, to head on over to Horror 4H. That's the word horror, the number 4, the letter H, all one word, on Facebook and like the page, and to follow us on Twitter, also Horror 4H. And feel free to send me a message on either of those or to email me directly at horror4h at gmail.com. Okay, so I'm sure some of you could guess one of my passions is all things spoopy. In my free time, I don't just watch horror movies. Oh no. I also listen to several YouTube channels and other media aimed at showing the latest ghost videos or weird scene in the woods and so on and so forth. Most of which I shoot down pretty quickly because while I am a believer in many things paranormal, I'm a skeptical believer and I go in with an eye towards the mundane hoping to come out without any solid explanation. In that same vein, I'm a sucker for anything involving unsolved true crime. Murders, serial killers, disappearances. One of my favorite things to listen to is the stuff that David Politis has done. If you've never heard of the guy, but you love creepy shit, then you need to listen to his talks. He's been on lots of other podcasts and radio shows and YouTube channels. If you just Google him or, or go onto YouTube and, and look up his name, David Politis, you'll find his stuff very quickly. He's also got several books out, all of them called Missing 411. It's, it's all about disappearances in the woods, mostly in the United States. Uh, I think he's done books about the same kind of disappearances elsewhere in the world. He goes in with a very analytical mind. Uh, I could honestly talk about his stuff all day. Uh, anyways, so because I love that sort of thing so much, and because I also, in my spare time, write horror stories, I thought, hey, why not combine both of those things along with this whole podcast thing, right? So I did. So, please keep in mind that the following is completely fictional, and none of it is real. Though, hopefully I'll do such a good job with this that partway through, you'll forget that entirely. I also want to say that any music, save for the opening Horror 4H theme that you've heard at the beginning of every episode, that is written and performed by yours truly, that's right, I play piano, I also play bass and sing, but that's not relevant, all of the other music in today's episode is provided free of cost by Kevin McLeod. A link to the site his music can be found on is in the description of this episode, and I will be posting the link uh, to that site on both the Facebook page and the Twitter feed when this episode airs. So be sure to check that out. He's got some really great music that I didn't include here, both horror and otherwise. Okay, it's time to enter the woods, and with any luck, you'll get to leave them. So sit back, have a hard time relaxing and enjoy being terrified. April 12, 1984 was a balmy day for the residents of the small Illinois town of Blue Hill. The sunrise that morning was obscured by heavy clouds that stayed present for most of the day and left the town constantly misted with rain and humidity. But not even that sort of weather would put a damper on Bernadette Peters' fun. By all accounts, Bernadette was a warm and friendly 13-year-old who was well-liked by everyone who had the good fortune to meet her. She was active in both her school government and in local politics as well, something not often seen in the 80s. She was the student body treasurer and had helped ensure a pond on the outskirts of town to be designated as part of the city park to keep it from being drained by a company that was planning to buy and zone the land for industrial purposes. She had told her friends and family that when she grew up, she wanted to be a politician and help save more wilderness across the country. Had the events of the evening of the 12th of April gone differently, likely many of you would be familiar with Bernadette as a conservationist of note. Instead, however... Those who know her name now only associate it with tragedy and mystery. The day began for her as any other. Her mother remembers her being cheerful and looking forward to school as always. She wasn't particularly gifted at most subjects, but was a B and C student, though she almost always got A's in science classes. 
Her mother told reporters later that she'd made chocolate chip pancakes for Bernadette, her favorite breakfast, as a sort of good luck charm for a test she'd had that day. If only that luck had carried over into the night. Bernadette attended every class that day. Every teacher gave the same account for it. She seemed her normal self. Nothing was out of place. Nothing felt odd to them. In every indication, it was a typical day for the town of Blue Hill. After school, she left for home, just over a two-mile walk that she made almost every school day and was seen by multiple people along the road. That, along with the fact that her books were in a room, as were her school clothes, leads investigators to believe that she made it home without issue. Her movements after that, however, are in question. A few of her close friends, a Maggie Peters, no relation, and a James Turley, both said they'd agreed in their last class of the day to meet Bernadette at the entrance to a nearby woods. Testament Woods is a large forest that in recent years has been named a state park in Illinois, but in 1984 it was still legal to hunt and fish in. Maggie and James and Bernadette regularly explored the woods, and all three knew them well enough to find their way in and out easily, according to the pair. According to them, though, Bernadette never showed up, and after waiting 20 to 30 minutes, the pair left the woods and went back to James's house to study. James's father, Harold Turley, corroborated this when questioned by police later, though his timeline of the event differed slightly from Maggie and James' accounts, but police feel this difference is due to simple memory lapses instead of ill intent. Several motorists remember seeing Bernadette walking in the general direction of Testament Woods around the time when James and Maggie were supposedly leaving the forest, and their path would have taken them away from Bernadette's, making it highly unlikely they'd see or interact with her. Perhaps she was just running late. The last person on record to see Bernadette Peters was Monroe Madison. He was 42 at the time and was known by local authorities as he had a long history of petty crime, most of which were minor incidents of theft, assaults that amounted to him starting bar fights, public intoxication, drunk driving, and one account of sexually assaulting a minor. This last charge came from a family member, a niece of his, that said during a family gathering after a long day of drinking that Monroe had groped her and attempted to force himself on her. She was 16 at the time. That charge was later dropped, as often happens in small town back then. The family decided to sweep it under the rug as opposed to having him taken to court and their business to be publicly aired. Monroe only came forward a week after Bernadette's disappearance, and his only statement was that he'd seen her near the woods. The motorists who saw her all described her as wearing the same outfit, green jeans, a white top with a yellow floral pattern, and white tennis shoes. She had blonde hair at the time, down to her mid-back, but usually wore it in a ponytail. She was Caucasian and approximately 5 feet 2 inches and just over 100 pounds. Monroe Madison is believed to have been the last person to see Bernadette Peters intact. When she didn't return home in time for dinner, her mother and father thought little of it. When Bernadette was out with friends, especially in the woods, she'd often arrive home later than preferred. It was something she was often chastised for. However, after an hour had gone by, her mother began to get worried. She started calling the houses of Bernadette's friends, and after talking with Maggie directly, she became frantic. She recalled, I wasn't worried until Maggie told me Bernadette never showed up at the woods. That wasn't like her. She'd never miss spending time out there, and she was smart enough not to go into the woods alone. That's when I knew something had to have happened to her, and I called the police right away. It was already dark by the time police got the call. They knew the Peters well. Bernadette's father, Colin, was a regular contributor to the Blue Hills Police Department every year and would regularly volunteer his time and money to them. They sent an officer to the Peters' home and soon after spoke with both Maggie and James and found out where the trio usually entered the woods. Four officers were sent to that spot to begin looking for any signs of Bernadette, but the weather began to get worse before they could cover much ground, and the rain and storm that evening made it impossible for a search party to get organized. 
The storm broke before daylight, and as soon as the sun rose, most of the police force and several dozen of the small town's residents were being led in a search party. Blue Hill in the 1980s was larger than it is now, but still considered a relatively small town at just around 12,000 residents. The majority of the people in town were either farmers or worked at one of two local factories or the nearby coal mine. It rarely had out-of-town visitors, save for mid-August when the town hosts its Corn Days, which garners a large group of people from surrounding states during the festival, which lasts a week. The town can then swell up to almost triple its normal size. But in April, almost everyone knew everyone else in the town. The search expanded over the course of the first day, and eventually involved over a hundred volunteers. This would later become a criticism of the Blue Hill Police Department, as many volunteers were counted later that they weren't properly instructed, and it's possible some areas were completely missed by the searchers, or that possible evidence was destroyed, moved, or concealed. It wasn't until morning on April 15th that the searching turned up any evidence at all. Testament Woods is nearly 250 acres of old-growth forest, and even though in the 80s it was fully open to the public at any time of year, much of it remained undisturbed, which made the searching slow going. James and Maggie were led out of school to help in the search, as they showed investigators the usual spots they and Bernadette would get off to. Colin Peters went on record years later saying he didn't believe most of what James and Maggie had said, and felt they were both lying to cover something up. Whether or not that involved his daughter, he wasn't sure. There may be some truth to his suspicions, as multiple times when they weren't together, they told investigators conflicting reports about where they spent most of their time with Bernadette, or who else would go into the woods with them. But police attributed these inconsistencies with their age and the stress of the situation. The general belief of the police was that Bernadette had wandered into the woods alone and gotten lost, something both her parents and friends vehemently denied. Bernadette's mother said often that she knew better than to go into the woods alone, citing the last time she'd done so, she'd been 11, that she'd gotten a spanking so bad she couldn't sit down for the rest of the day, and had promised never to go into the woods alone again. All of her friends who the police spoke to also said she had a deep fear of going into the woods alone again, not wanting to enrage her father, a man who was known to have a rather violent streak from time to time. But that general belief all changed shortly after sunrise on the 15th. That morning, a police dog from the nearby city of Railsville, Indiana, was lent to Blue Hill. It had picked up Bernadette's scent rather easily and led police to a spot not far from an area that had supposedly been searched multiple times. The dog honed in on the spot, and after searching the undergrowth, police found what was later confirmed to be Bernadette's left pinky finger, through her having been fingerprinted at a school program. The medical report showed that she'd likely been alive when it had been removed, and that it had been removed with a clean, single cut, most likely from a large blade. A machete or something similar was the probable instrument. When they told me that, I fainted. I mean, can you imagine what it's like? Your daughter is missing, and you hope maybe they're right in thinking she's just run off, but instead, now you know. You know someone hurt her and took her. Bernadette's mother was inconsolable after that, and her father was the public face that spoke to police and to media from then on. The search efforts redoubled after finding her finger, and state law enforcement was brought in as well. Before the end of the evening on the 15th, Blue Hill Police Department had also requested the FBI become involved, as it was considered a kidnapping. Officers were stationed at the major points of entering and exiting Testament Woods day and night on the off chance the kidnapper would return. The dog that had been brought in couldn't pick up any other scent and would simply return to the spot where they'd found her finger and sit. The area was searched extensively, and no footprints or any other evidence of Bernadette or any other person could be found anywhere near it, much to the confusion and chagrin of the authorities. A Detective Johnson was quoted later as saying, It's like something just picked her up out of the woods and left her finger for us to find. 
There's not a trace of anything else happening there. Damnedest thing I've ever seen. Flyers were put up everywhere, and door-to-door searches and interviews were being done, but save for those previously mentioned, no one had seen or heard from Bernadette after she entered the woods. Within the next few days, no other trace had been found, and the authorities' attention turned first to Colin Peters. They'd been questioning everyone who knew the family and had discovered that not only were there several charges of violence that had been swept under the rug in the last several years regarding him, but that some people claimed he'd been inappropriate with his daughter on multiple occasions. These accusations were never brought up in court, and so their sources cannot be confirmed, but once they'd been made public, Colin vehemently denied them. He gave one final press conference before he and his wife shut themselves off from the media almost completely. Bernadette's mother, Diane Peters, only spoke on the accusation once on the record. What's odd is her not outright denying the claims, but instead saying, Whatever has happened in the past is just that, the past. We only care about finding our little girl. Some took this as an admission to Colin's possible relations with his daughter, while others point to Diane never really being herself again after Bernadette's disappearance, and that her statements after the finger was found are all tainted by mental illness regarding the subject, likely PTSD. Colin Peters was brought in multiple times over the next month and a half and given two separate polygraphs, which he took against the advice of his lawyer. Both times he passed when questioned about the disappearance of his daughter, but the results regarding any questioning about sexual abuse were deemed inconclusive. While Colin was a major suspect of the investigation, the police's main focus was Monroe Madison after he came forward with his statement about seeing Bernadette near the woods just before her disappearance. Monroe was held by police on and off for weeks. These interviews intensified after police finally gave up on Colin Peters being a suspect. Three months to the day after her disappearance, Monroe actually confessed to abducting and murdering Bernadette, but he later recanted in court, saying his confession was coerced out of him by police using alcohol and force. Despite the community blaming him and the public backlash, the judge of the case threw out the confession based on Monroe's appearance on court the day after the confession was released. Monroe was said to have a black eye, still being in a stupor from heavy drinking, and had severe trouble speaking and breathing, was eventually taken to the Blue Hill Hospital and was x-rayed and shown to have several cracked ribs and bruising consistent with the injuries he purported the police inflicted on him. Police claimed later that he had become belligerent in the interview, and that he was drunk when they picked him up, and that he instigated a fight with the officers interviewing him, which resulted in them using force to restrain him. While Monroe's confession was thrown out, no charges were ever brought against the officers who inflicted the injuries on him, and the community as a whole still believed he was the culprit, especially after the accusations of his niece came forward. The only person who seemingly believed Monroe was Colin Peters himself. This belief helped cement his place as the person who did abduct Bernadette in the minds of many of those involved, saying his certainness in Monroe's innocence could only be that strong if Colin himself had done the deed. A part of the story not often focused on by those who look into the disappearance, mainly due to law enforcement largely ignoring it, was the potential involvement of James Turley and Maggie Peters. Earlier it was mentioned that James's timeline didn't match up with what investigators had discovered. There was about an hour discrepancy between when James and Maggie arrived home and when they said they did. Police just assumed this was due to them being children and the stress of the events of that evening weighing heavily on them. While this is certainly a plausible explanation, the events that took place later on in their lives have cast some doubt on their story and led some who have followed the case to wonder if their involvement went further than originally assumed. By the time corn days rolled around, the disappearance of Bernadette was largely no longer in the news. It had been a few months and nothing new in the case had happened. 
Monroe's release was the last big news in the case, and while the majority of Blue Hill believed him guilty, most of them wished nothing to do with him rather than to harass him. Mention of the disappearance was almost non-existent by then as well, for fear that it would impact the tourism the town had come to rely on during the festival. Even then, the town took precautions, and Testament Woods was off-limits during the festival. Nothing new happened until October 15th. Blue Hill Fire Department had a call of smoke being seen in Testament Woods. It was assumed to have been a campfire that hadn't been properly doused, as that October was rather dry for the area. But by the time firefighters reached the area, the fire was smoldering and dying out. It had been a relatively small fire, what they later called a controlled burn, but the disturbing thing was at the center of the fire, there were remains of another finger. Most of the flesh was gone, but some remained as the bones were intact. DNA testing had yet to be perfected, and so the remains couldn't be positively identified and wouldn't be for years to come. However, it was assumed to have been Bernadette's based on other factors. It was a pinky finger from the right hand of a Caucasian girl close to Bernadette's age and was almost the exact same size as the pinky finger from her left hand. Investigators believed it had been removed while the victim was alive, but the state of it after the fire made this difficult, if not impossible, to determine with certainty. Later, due to DNA testing, it was determined to be Bernadette's finger. This new event shocked the community and law enforcement back into action. The source of the call reporting the fire was never identified, and the responder to the call couldn't recall anything about the voice on the line, male or female or any other possible identifying factors. New searches of the woods were conducted, but zero evidence was found. No tracks leading to or away from the fire, save for those made by firefighters, were discovered. They couldn't even determine exactly what accelerant had been used to start the fire. After another series of questioning, both of Colin Peters and Monroe Madison, and both of whom seemed to have fairly airtight alibis for when the fire was called in, not much more of the investigation was found. Simply put, the police had no more leads to follow up on. Officers were placed around the usual entrances to Testament Woods, but nothing more could be done in the ways of follow-up. And again, nothing further happened until several months later. On April 15, 1985, a couple was walking along a trail in Testament Woods when they spotted a red ribbon tied around a tree. One of the two approached it before turning and rushing out of the woods with their partner in tail. They contacted the police as fast as they could, and when they arrived on scene it was discovered that the ribbon was keeping yet another finger in place against the tree. This one was intact, and was determined to be a ring finger of the left hand of a Caucasian girl near Bernadette's age. Since the finger was intact, prints were taken and it matched with Bernadette's. Again, the finger was determined to have been cleanly severed while she was still alive. Colin Peters had an alibi for that morning and the evening before, but Monroe was nowhere to be found and wouldn't be seen for several more years and was believed to be the prime suspect at that point, having no other leads to go on. It wasn't long after this incident that Diane Peters was institutionalized. She had become incoherent and largely unresponsive after hearing the news of the third finger being found and confirmed to be her daughter's. She remained institutionalized until her death in 1996 of an apparent heart attack. The entire time she was in the psychiatric institution, she never gave a statement regarding her daughter again. As with the previous two fingers, this one also lacked any trace evidence as to where Bernadette was being held or any tracks in or out of the woods, save for the couple who found it and the police who investigated. The couple was quickly cleared of suspicion. Sadly and shockingly, this became a regular occurrence. In 1986, on April 15th, the right ring finger of Bernadette was found nailed to a tree near the entrance of the woods by a camper. Again, there was no evidence of where it had come from or how it had gotten there. The nail was the most common kind available in the country at that point, 
and as before, it seemed to have come from a living person. Seeing the pattern, the police cordoned off as much of the woods as they could on April 14th of 1987. However, manpower being what it was and the woods being as large as they were, it was impossible to cover the entire area, and so it came as no great shock that on that morning of the 15th, a right pinky toe was found placed in the center of a small formation of rocks in Testament Woods. It was preserved, and later, DNA testing showed it belonged to a still-living when it was removed, Bernadette Peters. This pattern mysteriously continued throughout the years. In total, all of Bernadette's fingers and toes were found in this sort of manner. Some were hung from trees, some were covered in small cairns, some were placed in the middle of trails to be found, and after the fingers and toes, four teeth were eventually recovered. There was not enough evidence on these to show they definitively came from Bernadette, but dental x-rays of her showed that the teeth more than likely belonged to her. Perhaps the strangest thing about this is that every piece of her that was recovered from the woods, there was evidence to show she was still alive when it was removed, and even stranger still is that all seemed to come from a person about the age she was when she disappeared. Doctors have stated it's possible due to a large number of factors that growth could have been halted, that her bone structure still showed no signs of aging, and that her teeth still showed wear and tear consistent with a 13-year-old's. The teeth were the last remnants of Bernadette to be found, as in 2006, Testament Woods was designated as a state park in Illinois, and much of the area was off-limits to hiking and camping, and the woods are closed to hunting. Most of the residents of Blue Hill refuse to talk about the Peters case these days, and those who are old enough to remember it seem to choose not to. Most of the residents of the surrounding area also tend to avoid the woods in the spring months. You'll still find teenagers heading into the woods on October 15th to speak with the spirit of Bernadette Peters or to contact the entity that took her, though police interference has made this happen with less frequency than before. Colin Peters refuses to speak on the subject to anyone and has maintained his silence since shortly after his wife was institutionalized. He has not been considered a suspect for a long time. Monroe Madison dropped off the radar in late 1985 and didn't reappear until 1996 when his body surfaced on the banks of the Deer Tail River that Blue Hill sits on, near the border of it and Indiana. His death was determined to be accidental drowning due to alcohol. Most residents assumed that this was the end of everything until April of 1997 when another of Bernadette's toes was found. Maggie Peters changed her name in the late 90s and then married and hasn't lived in Illinois since 1995. She refused to answer any questions about the case after the initial disappearance and maintained her innocence while never accounting for the difference in timelines. James Turley spoke rarely about the disappearance, but when he did, his language and mannerisms always drew criticism and skepticism. He maintained his innocence, but frequently apologized and appeared as what many have referred to as having a guilty conscience. He began to be arrested in the early 90s for frequent drug usage and died in 2002 from a heroin overdose. The overdose appears to have been intentional, as he left a note that was released in part to the press. What was shown in the papers simply said, And to Bernadette and her family, I'm so sorry. I could have done more to stop it, but I was scared and still am. Please forgive me. If you can't, I understand as I could never forgive myself. Maggie, I'm so sorry. I should have never dragged you into it all. Nothing new has been discovered in the case since the last tooth in 2006, and since that area of the woods has become, according to the National Park Service, too dangerous for non-park officials to enter. It is unknown if more parts of Bernadette have been left there since then, but many speculate that they have been, 
and that they remain there to be found by anyone brave enough to venture into that area of Testament Woods, or that the National Park Service scours the area on April 15th every year to quietly retrieve anything found and hide it away. Multiple Freedom of Information Act inquiries have been filed by myself and others to obtain any information on activities the Park Service have conducted there, but every time they are denied for varying reasons. So to this day, the disappearance of Bernadette Peters remains open and unsolved.